Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today's podcast is a special episode of Talking Precision Medicine, dedicated to the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. The AAIH saw its official hard launch at JP Morgan this past January, with a standing room only panel discussion at the Biotech Showcase. Our guest today is Dr. Anastasia Maka, a senior advisor at Adjuvant Partners and the muscle behind standing up the AAIH. The Alliance is a global organization that aims to improve patient quality of life by creating more effective, sustainable, and accessible healthcare. Through its work on education, regulatory issues, technology standards, and more, the AAIH will foster the responsible development of emerging industry segments poised to have a tremendous impact across the healthcare spectrum. At the end of our conversation with Anastasia, we will include some bonus material that was recorded at a panel session at J. Morgan on the future of AI-powered healthcare. Full disclosure, Genialis is a founding member of the AAIH, and its CEO, Raphael Rosengarten, is a board director. Let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. Today, we're here chatting with Anastasia Maka. Anastasia is a PhD from Johns Hopkins, and since then, she's had a really interesting career actually in business primarily. I'll let her uh, do the talking, but what we want to really focus on today is her current role as a co-founder through the Adjuvant Partners Group in standing up the new Alliance for Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. So Anastasia, welcome. Thank you for having me. Why don't we start at the present and we can maybe work backwards through your biography, but tell us about the Alliance for Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare. So I think um, it, there's a lot to tell, but I think if I had to give you a snapshot, I would say uh, this is a community of uh, founding member companies uh, that see a vision for applying uh, artificial intelligence slash machine learning to healthcare and can truly see high potential, but at the same time recognize that there are challenges along the way that we do need to address in order to realize that promise of AI in healthcare. The AAIH, as it's known, uh, just launched at JP Morgan. Tell us a bit about the events that took place at uh, the JPM in San Francisco. Absolutely. We're, a lot of us are still recovering, <laughs> just so you're aware. We had our inaugural panel session. So this was our coming out party where we announced our formation. This was on the 7th of January. Uh, and then followed by our inaugural board meeting on January 9th. Uh, and really on January 7th, uh, we were just signaling to the international community our intent and that we're coming together as a community. And we spent um, most of the time during our board meeting discussing our rules of engagement, our bylaws, and some of the initiatives we would like to go after as we are in this formative stage. But most importantly, we selected our executive officers and committee chairs for our various initiatives that we'll probably go into a little later. And I think that was a very good step in the right direction. So at the moment, 
uh, I feel very excited that we've identified the leaders for some of those initiatives that we would be addressing. And we'd be spending the next couple of weeks actually working with those committee chairs to come up with a more rigid straw man on some of the initiatives we want to achieve in this year. Yeah, I'm, I for one am super excited. So just for full disclosure, Genialis is uh, among the founding companies and I have a board seat at the AAIH. But we sort of came to it, you know, recently, just at the end of 2018, we, we signed up. Tell us a bit about how, how the idea for the organization fomented. How did you get involved in the first place? So I, it's, it's interesting how I got involved because, so I'll start at the beginning. So Adjuvant and Holland and Knight, who are the alliance management contractors with it, in the past, we're actually co-founders of the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine, which was founded in 2009 around cell gene therapy, tissue engineering, and really it was a catch-all for advanced therapies at the time where these were considered particularly exciting, uh, potentially destructive, but there were really no regulatory guidelines, uh, there were no standards and no models of reimbursement. So a few companies came around uh, recognizing this to coalesce around this unmet need uh, or this set of unmet needs and to really look at it in a unified way and interface with regulatory bodies, with payers uh, and other stakeholders in a more coordinated manner. And to date, the Alliance for Generative Medicine is international. Uh, it has over 300 members and they're responsible for actually writing or drafting uh, the provisions for regulatory and standards in the 21st Century Cures Act, which actually established regenerative medicine advanced therapies as a pathway with the FDA and over a thousand clinical trials uh, have that designation today. So in part due to that success, several AI companies approached Team Adjuvant feeling that AI may be in a similar position as was advanced therapies back in the day. It's overhyped. It has a lot of potential. However, there are a lot of challenges. Uh, and in fact, a lot of these challenges are across the board where even competitors can put their heads together and think constructively around these themes. So really, that was the driver behind this. So these discussions actually started very informally last year in January. And in around February, March, uh, we did a, a little bit of a market research. Uh, we uh, essentially gate-crushed uh, two dinners with about 10 companies to see, to solicit whether they thought this was interesting, something they may have interest in standing behind. And I think at the time, it was just considered too early. You know, do a little bit more thinking, come back, let's continue discussions. So really, we spent a better part of the year trying to figure out with what would the right model look like, who would be the right founders. Um, and in this membership type of organization, the founding members really own the organization in the sense that they set the foundation and sort of really the foundational stones for where we would go. And I think we spent a lot of time doing that. So during that time, uh, Raphael, we interviewed with a lot of people, had a lot of brainstorms, and we were really trying to figure out what is our niche, what are the areas that make sense for us to work in, and really doing uh, a lot of that early work. So just as you would uh, when you're studying your small biotech, uh, there are a whole host of things that you need to consider, and we spent a lot of time doing that. 
and I think lucky and I think just the one thing I just wanted to mention was our magic number was actually 15 um, and we felt like if we could get this is for founding members yes we felt that if we got to 15 that would be a signal that we had sufficient critical mass to actually launch this so when we got to 15 is when we really felt like this was a go. And we did signal that we are now looking to do a more formal launch at that point. So that happened in September. And really, we spent a lot of time refining some of those discussions and getting in a few additional members that we felt would really strengthen us and fill the gaps that we didn't have in terms of applications and know-how. Yeah, well, I mean, from the the hard launch uh, just this past week at, at JPM, it seems like the message got out. Um, what was the statistic? Uh, it was the most RSVP'd event at JPM outside of JPM for the whole week. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's what I heard. I just know that we were concerned. Yeah, we were more concerned about the venue and the potential volume of people showing up. So yeah, we we were happy to take the Guinness Book of Record on that one. It was really exciting for all of us. It, it was a good showing. And I think it was a lot of people that really put their heads together to make this happen. We worked with uh, an amazing uh, event planner. The person who led us there was Kathy Chase uh, at EBD Group. We worked with uh, a host of other people to actually make it happen. So there were a lot of people working in the background to see us to success. I mean, it occurs to me one of the important things about an industry body like the AAIH is that, you know, we scientists kind of get caught up in the, in the weeds of, of operating, of innovating, of doing the science and forget that we have to tell the world about what we're working on. Now, mm-hmm. as, you, as you mentioned, AI as a field is kind of riding a hype wave right now. And so lots of people are hearing about it, but maybe they're mm-hmm. not hearing about it from the folks who actually know what's going on. So, so this is exciting to me. You've now formed a mouthpiece for, for people to kind of tell their stories. I think that's really why I get excited as well. And, you know, I know we didn't get into my background, but I am nowhere close to being a data scientist, statistician, mathematician, physicist. My background is actually chemistry. And on the medical side, I did uh, drug design. So I did drug design the traditional way. So what gets me excited is the fact that it took me so long to come up with credible leads and compounds and a lot of trial and error, a lot of iteration. And to see now that by applying machine learning, you can do this in weeks, maybe even days. And some people even claim overnight is simply amazing to me. So my passion for this is really around the potential that I see. And so that's the lens that I view this with. And really, that's what brought me in to really sort of put heads together with a lot of the CTOs and CEOs just to better understand what it is they are doing. So just seeing how that impact could potentially be big um, really made me feel like, well, as we look at really a lot of these other applications that come to bear in improving healthcare holistically, there is a chance and really what is it that we need to do to try to remove some of those barriers? Uh, one of the things that was most impressive to me looking at the, you know, sort of the NASCAR slide of all the, the companies and organizations that are involved in this first iteration and also sitting across from my colleagues at the board meeting is really the, the range of stakeholders. So 
tell us both about the, you know, kind of who all in terms of company type are involved in the AAIH, and also from your experience in, in building organizations like this, how do you strategize the, the membership composition? That's a very good question. But before I, I get into any details, let me say, <laughs> I think you were part of the discussion too, that I, a lot of companies didn't feel like being boxed into any particular application. And I think largely it's because we really need to look at the healthcare sector holistically. And while we are doing that, we need to sort of identify some of those clinical applications or research applications. So on day one, the way I had viewed this was very, very healthcare value chain related as key verticals, biomedical discovery, clinical research, medical devices and diagnostics, and then precision medicine. And the way I was defining precision medicine in that early stage was anything that was patient or population health-based thing. So all the decision-making, key stratification, and sort of patient stratification components, um, how they would look. So initially, I started doing it that way because I wanted to make sure that as we formed, we represented each one vertical significantly. So the goal was if we have at least two representatives from each pillar, we would be in good shape because as we start, we want to be sure we are holistic in our thinking. And so I used that. And then over time, a lot of people would sort of say, well, we straddle the fence, we do this. And I always appreciated that, but I was really focusing on their call. So at the meeting, the reason you now see a NASCAR, <laughs> NASCAR slide, is because we sort of, I had a lot of feedback that a lot of people are really straddling the fence. And for example, a good example is if somebody is doing biomarker discovery, they're going to do target ID, right? They're going to identify a target. They're going to identify the biomarker. The biomarker is going to be ultimately used to do clinical trials, perhaps, or to facilitate sort of patient uh, recruitment retention. And then once you're in the clinic, those same biomarkers are going to be used to deliver care more precisely and effectively. So the reality is, even though a company might be in a niche area, those applications they're working on really traverse the entire continuum. And that's why we need to sort of keep thinking holistically. So in that mindset, we still want to focus on who are the niche players. So we have companies that are looking at drug discovery and repurposing. We have several small companies in that sector. And then we have a clinical research. And clinical research could be, you know, more from the traditional pharmaceutical companies. And within the pharma companies themselves, some have their own in silico drug discovery groups that are separate from their clinical research groups that are separate from other AI functions. And then some pharma companies have all of these integrated in one. But needless to say, all of them do have a component in the clinical research pillar. Uh, and then we have medical devices and diagnostics that represent their own pillar. Uh, and obviously, most of these are being used in care delivery. And as we're looking at machine learning and AI, they're really part of the precision medicine and precision analytic framework. So they are a group there. And the reason we want to sort of call that those out is really because some of the issues they face will be in common with others. Some will be on their own. And then the last group we, we, we're sort of looking at is really a catch-all for clinical applications. So this could be around predictive care guidance, patient uh, records, and population health. And so what I wanted to do was call out those four yeah. Simply because the people in the healthcare sector, that's how we think of the 
the pillars. And then come back to now how we are looking at it, which is, and I think you loved, you, you, you had very good feedback on this. There's another slide I made for just AI for discovery and development and then AI for clinical application. I, I think the challenge that, that you're describing in, in thinking of how do, you, how do you articulate what companies like ours do um, is a challenge mm-hmm. that, that, frankly, the companies themselves have. And it's, it's yeah. difficult, for example, for some more traditional big pharma and, and certainly for investors in the space to pattern match because these new, call them you know, lean biotechs, where they really think about the data assets as being the, you know, the, the tip of the spear to making any kind of change in the, in the industry. You know, they're not traditional mm-hmm. tech. They're not traditional life science. They're, this is a new space. Mm-hmm. But, but, mm-hmm. It may, but maybe that's exactly why we need an industry body, which we now have. Absolutely. So you've, you've, you've touched on um, two things here. So uh, other than the fact that we are um, forcing ourselves to stratify in certain ways, I think even looking at the investor community and capital formation and business models for these companies, uh, it's a conversation that really needs to happen more intimately because we're bringing together traditional technology investors and technology life sciences investors each with different criteria and appetite um, for uh, funding uh, these small companies. So I think even in that regard, it's, it's creating uh, a need for that discussion. And as somebody on that panel said, if you, if you want to raise money, just add a .ai at the end of your name. I think um, those are all issues we need to be dealing with uh, at the moment. Yeah. One of, the, one of the things I meant when I complimented you on the, the sort of composition of the organization wasn't just in terms of what kinds of, of problems are the companies tackling the use cases, but, you know, there are a bunch of startups of different sizes and maturity, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. there are also some mm-hmm. really, big, really big industry players and even some not-for-profits that are, are you know, serious, uh, serious names in, in this new sector. So talk a little bit mm-hmm. about, you can either name names or not, but just kind of who all has come to the table and who are some of the, the heavyweights lending credibility to the effort? Yeah, I know. So I think I can give a few examples. So I'll start with the not-for-profits. So we have the Buck Institute and University of Pittsburgh. The Buck Institute basically is developing uh, its AI vision and around aging. And they're really trying to put that together uh, in a meaningful way. And they've decided to join while they're still nascent in their thinking, which is absolutely wonderful uh, in terms of their institutional uh, initiative. University of Pittsburgh is, by disclosure, it's a little bit near and dear to my heart because I did go there for my undergrad. Uh, but when we talked through all of this, uh, this wasn't the driver for us at all. In fact, they were unaware that I was alumni and so much later in the discussion. But with University of Pittsburgh, I think it's that cross-thinking that we are looking to as well, especially from the School of Computer uh, and Information Sciences. They are really taking a lot of different views on this and then bringing that back and marrying it with the health system, with other applications or other sectors. It's really a good addition for us uh, where we can actually really interact with the various players and supporters uh, within the institution. So I think that's a very exciting play for us. And then on the big company side, we are lucky to have, uh, I'll just quickly mention the five big players we have 
are with us and focusing on the pharma side is, again, as I mentioned, that the different pharmaceutical players all have different frameworks. They actually, despite being all pharma, each company does have a perspective, may have a different organization functional scheme. And understanding that from them and what they're looking for and where their gaps are. Because ultimately, from the drug development side, that is the end user. So that's, that's bringing a lot of value to our thinking. And to the smaller companies, I think it also helps guide them to really understand where their next future platforms are going and what kinds of issues they need to be able to address. So I think having that dynamic uh, is, is an excellent one for us. So even though they both may have the lens of drug discovery, they do bring different perspectives to the table. And then uh, as we think about the smaller companies, I'm just really excited about the diversity within those small companies. We have companies like Invisigenics that are uh, focused on RNA. We have companies like Neregis that are focused on uh, naturally occurring peptides. Uh, We have a whole different host of approaches. And just seeing how all these very forward-looking companies can come together and, and work together on this is truly exciting for me. And I know that we can even feel like we have competitors, right? But I don't think that's a word that really exists with us. I think it's really more competitive. We may be competitors in the outside world and we don't even really see ourselves as this. So the exciting part is to see that collaboration amongst companies that are similar and also amongst companies that are very different and can complement each other. Yeah, I mean, it was a very collegial atmosphere. And I think the, the bigger point is there's so much work to be done in wrangling the world's mm. biomedical data and making it actionable and useful. And frankly, there's so many diseases we need to address that uh, right now, anyway, I think all comers are kind of welcome to take a stab at it with our preferred approach. Um, and and mm-hmm. people are genuinely interested in helping each other, which I found was great. I think that's really, to, to be fair, I was excited because of my little history that I gave you. But yeah. I think in seeing the interactions amongst these folks, it, the passion is infectious. Like you, you see it and you want to, you know, you want to help, you want to be a part of it. And I think that's, that's how I, I envisioned having a founding cohort that was friendly and collaborative because obviously it's difficult to work together even when you love each other, right? So mm-hmm. how do we actually create that atmosphere of collaboration? And I, I really uh, am most excited about that and the fact that people are treating each other like collaborators. Um, we discuss issues openly. People speak freely. They give their opinions. And right now, as we start the organization, it's very critical to make sure that even if we go in a direction that one person might not really fully agree with, they understand why we're doing it and they feel like they're part of that decision-making process. So I feel that with that mindset, uh, we are really on the path to creating a strong foundation that will position us to deal with most of those issues. Some issues that we don't even know today, but as the industry evolves, I'd like to believe that we are evolving with it. The landscape is changing and we are collaborative enough to actually change in a way that positions us appropriately to address those issues effectively. That sounds like a, a bold plan. So what's next? What, what are the, the next things that um, people out there in the world should look for from the AAIH? 
I'll just sort of emphasize our four pillars of our mission, if you will. So on the education piece, I think you will agree with me. And actually, I, I should state this because of my, my, my background, but it's really affirming the value of AI with all stakeholders. And this is just not payers, providers, patients, it's the public. It's really making sure that people really have a good understanding of what AI is, what it can and cannot do. And I think in that regard, we are, we're working on a white paper that will present our thoughts as a community in terms of how we are seeing this, how we are defining it uh, and setting the context for our future work. Uh, on the advocacy side, we do believe that it would be helpful to to create framework and guidelines that we believe uh, will be conducive to safe and effective use of AI and its integration uh, in both drug discovery and clinical delivery. And really, as we're bringing all these companies together, another bold thought is there's certain capabilities that we now have as a community that we each could not bring to bear on our own. So how do we foster collaboration around that? What are the big questions we can now address? Because we have this critical mass and this diverse perspective. And how do we you know, improve our dialogue around the key challenges around data, transparency, privacy, sharing, quality, and access? And then lastly, I think one of the things that we really need to sort of extract from the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine is really the ability to create a standard coordinating body uh, working with uh, NIST and, and, and others to somehow make sure we have standards uh, around validation, benchmarking, and the like, and that we can work across industry in that manner. So I think we have a lot of things to do. And I've mentioned a few things here, but needless to say, there are a lot of things that we could potentially address, but we need to be measured and take it one step at a time. So I think in this first quarter, we are refining our initiatives. Uh, we have a follow-up or check-up, I'll say check-in for our board meeting uh, within the next three to four weeks to make sure that any of our open items are closed and to really refine our near-term goals. And with that, really then getting to defining how we are defining the industry, how are we seeing it, and, and, and what is our perspective, and starting to lay the foundation, both from an education standpoint and from a technology and standards standpoint, what is it that we can do? And then only then with that education framework in hand, can we truly interact meaningfully with regulators and sort of work on our advocacy goals? So I think that's really sort of at a very top level. And obviously, um, and maybe you might feel I'm being a little flighty, but part of this is the committee chairs really need to own their space. Uh, we have the six standing committees, and I don't know if we've talked about that yet, but within each of those committees, the co-chairs are really the key drivers behind this. So they need to sort of get a good sense of what they think is critical and socialize it with us uh, and sort of gain our buy-in as we tackle this. So we will be focusing on the education uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, we will be looking at federal engagement and regulatory affairs, investment and commercialization. I think you referred to this earlier around capital formation and business model communications. You know, uh, what are the right conferences for us to partner with, to go to, what do we establish as our own? And, you know, in terms of uh, publications, journals, 
what can we do there to, to strengthen our position uh, and to support some of that activity. Uh, and then the technology standards and development around data sharing even, how do we actually uh, maximize the value of what we have as a group while we're still respecting everybody's proprietary position? And how do we uh, leverage that uh, to move the sector forward? And then lastly, the industry performance and data analytics. So working with other uh, market research and business intelligence groups to truly understand what's going on with the industry, what are the trends, and how do we fit in in all of that. So it does sound like a huge undertaking, but I believe we have enough interest, enough bodies around the table that really want to help drive some of these areas and see them evolve over time. Super exciting. I'm, I'm glad to be part of it. I'm glad to be able to watch uh, from the seats right up front. So, so the okay. AIH is a membership organization. Uh, what, what will its membership look like and, and how will it grow over the next year or so? That's a very interesting question because just to, to give you a sense of where we are and how we're grappling with our membership strategy is there's a lot of momentum and there's a lot of key drivers. So leading up to our launch, we did have a lot of inquiries, especially uh, as well around general membership, uh, which is the groups that are joining after launch. And I think what we need to be able to do is to sort of really balance building on a diverse membership with start to actually lay the foundation. So in an ideal world, you would want to really craft your foundation and then just scale. But in this case, we're trying to sort of do both. So really the challenge for us is to manage bringing in new members and making sure that as they come in, they're seamlessly integrated into those work streams I, I, I defined before. And then they can just join seamlessly into some of those initiatives as they occur. So I think that's something we're really, at least I'm sensitive to, that we really want to be a member organization where the members participate and, and can proactively participate. I know we have some folks who will say, well, 10% of the people do 90% of the work. And that may be true but we want to make sure that people's voices are heard and everybody might have a different level of engagement. But at the end of the day, people joining need to feel empowered to raise issues, especially issues that they feel the industry is facing to really encourage us to address some of those. So there will be two ways of thinking about this. We'll have some longer term initiatives, but we're going to have some more near term tasks that we conduct in the short term to address some of those issues. So we're excited to get new members. We're excited to get members who bring in new thinking, uh, who bring in diversity in terms of the applications that they have a knowledge in or a building platforms towards, uh, as well as end users of some of this who can actually help guide the platform developers into what the next generation platform should be addressing. So I think it's really sort of an open call. If you have good ideas, if you feel like there are issues that you're experiencing that other people may be experiencing that are related to machine learning, to AI, to sort of healthcare in general around these themes, um, then I think we would welcome uh, those groups as members as well. Fantastic. Thank you very much for taking some time to, to talk about this exciting organization. I'm sure that we'll all be seeing and hearing a lot more from it. And I'm excited to uh, not only watch as it happens, but as you reminded me, roll up my sleeves and do a whole bunch <laughs> of the work to make sure it happens. <laughs> Absolutely, you're already doing it. Um, but yeah, I think just one last word I just want to 
leave you with is this is truly one of the situations where you get out of something what you put in and being involved and being part of the discussion, identifying the problem, being part of the solution. That's exactly what we're looking for. And I think our job is to try to streamline that so that it can go as seamlessly as possible. As you can imagine, this might, this could be like herding cats, right? Uh, everybody has a different opinion and trying to get everybody to come around the table may be very difficult. But at the end of the day, we all share the same ambition and that's what keeps us together. I think that's important. Amen. Well, thank you, Anastasia. I really do appreciate it. <laughs> for Artificial Intelligence in Healthcare sponsored a panel discussion at the J.P. Morgan Biotech Showcase this past January. We're happy to share a handful of highlights from the panelists. The conversation that day ranged much wider than we can include here, but follow the AAIH on social media to see which conferences and events you can join us at next time. Angeli Moeller, Bayer. When I look at our uh, AI program, you see a lot of algorithms that are developed where we say, these are the features, I'm an expert, I'm a lab head or a doctor, and these are the features in the data that I think are driving that disease or, or driving that analysis. Uh, but we're also increasingly investing in deep learning approaches where we don't know the features in the data, where this is something that the computer is telling us, we're just throwing the data at it. And I think that's... Increasingly, when we talk about how do we talk to regulators, this is going to be the more challenging area. Brandon Allgood, Numerate and AAIH co-chair. These are the tools that we're developing to make it more, more efficient, but I think the real win from AI and machine learning beyond the kind of faster, cheaper, you know, production of failures is the non-linearities. The use of AI and the use of machine learning starts to redefine what is the low-hanging fruit. It starts to redefine what we can, how we approach the problem, not just you know making us more efficient at the current process that we have in front of us. Ben Newton, GE Healthcare. Big data. Everything has to be big because if we're investing billions of dollars, then you don't want to invest billions of dollars into small data. And actually, it's not about big data. You know, it's about quality data, data that's well curated, that has depth. It's about the right kind of questions, the high-value questions that are being used to interrogate that data. John Baldoni, GSK, and AAIH Chair. There are 77,500 molecules that have been in humans or in, have been in long-term doc studies that would enable a phase one trial, 77,500. All those molecules have known structures, that most of them have known targets. And, and I think one of the ways, one of the quick wins is going to be when organizations start looking at those molecules and start putting chemical features around them, defining them in, in different ways in a computer, and then looking at protein databases and looking at protein sequences and genetic sequences and saying, well, where, where are these molecules actually, where else could they work? And where can we repurpose these? And I think that's going to be a really quick win when, when people start doing that. John Baldoni wants more. I don't have data to support this, but I suspect that the largest amount of data on how molecules interact with biology exists in the pharma companies. Lots of money has been spent there. A lot of uh, data has been generated. 
and um, for spectacular successes in the industry, as many spectacular successes there are in the industry, there's hundreds of failures. And that dark data of failure resides in the companies. And if you can release that dark data and get it curated and get it uh, annotated so that it can be used and create great data sets, then I believe uh, that, and GSK believes, that, that, that that's going to benefit everybody. Brandon Allgood once more. The data, you know, the data, has, you have to think about the data first and what you have before you start to think about what are the appropriate algorithms for the data. So we have to be able to deal with small amounts of data. Otherwise, this machine learning is not going to help us in emerging biology, which is always going by its nature have to be small data. This has been episode of Talking Precision Medicine. Please share it with your colleagues, leave a comment or a review, and stay tuned for the next one. Thanks for joining the conversation.